Hello and welcome to History in Reverse, a father-daughter science fiction podcast. Today we will be discussing the dystopias that we've read over the past year and comparing and analyzing them. in reverse. My name is Caroline. I'm here with my father, Richie. Hi. Hi. <laughs> and we're going to be discussing today the dystopias that we've been reading um, over the past year or, or so, and we've read a, a good handful of them at this point. Um, we've read some you... classics and some new things. Mm -hmm. You made me read some Lem. Naturally. <laughs> uh, so just to recap, uh, we read Brave New World, 1984, Return from the Stars, The Hunger Games, just the first book, um, The Handmaid's Tale, and two short stories, Omalas by Ursula Le Guin, and Truth of Fact, Truth of Fiction by Ted Chen. Truth, truth of Feeling. Truth of Feeling, sorry. And if anyone wants to hear more details about those specific stories, um, check out the podcasts in the feed before this, because we did, each, did do a podcast on each of them individually. So what we're going to do today is similar to what we did for our alien stories. Um, we're going to go over the dystopias we read and sort of talk about dystopias, utopias, and compare them and analyze them, um, talk about themes and, and all kinds of fun stuff. So are you excited, Dad? Yes, I'm very excited. So <laughs> I think, you know, we invented this uh, dystopia scale. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, on one end is 1984 and then the other end is... Um, Brave New World, mm -hmm. um, and we can discuss how they're different. And then I think we discovered there was more to this scale than just those two, because some dystopias have to do with technology, not so much. There's like, you know, I guess some dystopias have to do with politics and setting up the government, maybe being a repressive or society being repressive. So that's one. And the other one is technology appearing mm -hmm. and, and changing uh, people's lives in bad or good way. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So there's a, there's a lot of different things that are shared among these stories. Um, so I think, I mean, maybe we can start broadly with, you know, what, now having read a bunch of this, what would be qualified as dystopias, what is a dystopia? What is a utopia? At least when it comes to science fiction. You know, I think that, a dyst like we see in these stories, kind of like what you're talking about, a dystopia is a... Um, a world the author creates where things are not good for a variety of reasons and sometimes it's not it's not that they're not good for everybody but sometimes they're not good just for the characters or just for some of the characters right. within the story and it generally has to do not just with like that character's having a bad day but like there's some kind of system or whether it's a political system or a um, technology system right. in place that is um, causing the character to be living a dystopic life well, unhappy life, I suppose, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think so. What I find really interesting is actually the technology um, difference. So actually, since we uh, talked about that, let's just start, start there. Because I do think when we think of dystopias, for the most part, we think about things like 1984 and Brave New World, where it's the society, the structure of the society that's oppressive in some way or another, right? That's true, so, but in, in, in Brave New World, actually there's technologies in both, right? So in, in 1984, there was this technology that watched everybody so mm -hmm. big brother always knew what you were doing to the point mm -hmm. where you could not hide pretty much anything right but i think that there's a difference so so for example 
1984 in Brave New World, you have stories where the the dystopia aspect comes from the society. In 1984, it's just very oppressive. The technology isn't special. It's technology true, we have, true. right? Mm-hmm. Brave New World's technology is maybe a little bit more specialized. We don't necessarily have everything in Brave New World. But that's well, all but luxurious. I mean, in, in Brave New World, the technology of reproduction was kind of important to re- rebuild reforming the society right so no longer mm-hmm. there are parents you know mother is a dirty word mm-hmm. you know, the m word you know people go around saying the m word and that's really mm-hmm. bad so well, would you was... consider would you consider that a technical <clears throat> i so I, I guess in my in my mind that would still be kind of a more cultural dystopia as in comparison to something like return from the stars is the story that i think is kind of the standout in our list that right. and truth of fact truth of feeling the short story by Ted chang those two stories really focus on the fact that the the discomfort is coming from the technology that cannot be avoided and it's like the technology that's producing the main character's difficulty as opposed to the society that happens to be taking advantage of a technology that is producing the main character's uh, dis- discomfort kind of- does that make sense sort of you can also think about what which came first like you know mm-hmm. in brave new world the technology was kind of invented to for, to to form the society right mm-hmm. uh, because they allude to some previous wars or some bad things happening they decided to use technology to to stratify people into these classes so they were always very happy in the in the place in life and that's that's mm-hmm. why the technology came along whereas in um, return from the stars because you know the world just evolves into the future and this guy from the past shows up and he just doesn't fit because mm-hmm. in a, one of the reasons is the technology kind of prevents him from doing the stuff that kind of makes him him right exactly exactly and I, but i think that that's the difference i think that there's i think that's that what you just described is precisely the difference between these kind of more common cultural dystopias and then the, what seems to be the rarer technology dystopias and truth of fact truth of feeling fits into that latter category as right. well because it's it's not that it's not that society is trying to watch you exactly it's that this technology has become widely used and the main character is is uncomfortable with it for a variety right. of reasons and because it changes the way you think right so right. the technology in that story if you didn't read it is writing so mm-hmm. you know, the main character lives in the oral culture culture and and then writing is introduced and we see what interesting things happen. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I think that it's really interesting to think about the dystopias, both on kind of the spectrum, 1984 to Brave New World, and also within these categories of whether it's uh, cultural or whether it's technological. And I think, so I kind of, kind of two, two points on that. Um, the first being, I think that also helps us get to the question of what is science fiction, which is something we've talked about before, <laughs> because... Handmaid's Tale. Why is Handmaid's Tale a science fiction story? There's nothing, there's no... There is no the, science. Right? There's no technology that's fancy. There's no, you know, there's not, nothing that would normally market as a science fiction story, but I think we're all in agreement, even if the author is not necessarily, I think everyone else is in agreement, right. that it's a science fiction story. Maybe part of it is, it's kind of implied that it happens in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely think that's part of it. But I think it's one of the, it's because it is a dystopia that falls into that cultural dystopia right. category. Right. right. 
and because of the main character you know we just see the world through her eyes and she doesn't know that much she's on purpose being kept uninformed so we just kind of have to deduce what might be happening based on what she sees and what she might know mm -hmm. without mm -hmm. really knowing much of the history or, or you know and then the other thing that I'm interested in is um, we're kind of talking about the spectrum of Brave New World in 1984. Do you want to explain what, what we mean when we talk about that spectrum? Well, 1984 is, is obvious dystopia where there's very repressive government and, and people are pretty miserable living under this, this government. Maybe they pretend a little bit that, uh, that it's okay, but basically everybody is kind of, I don't know, sad, you know. Mm -hmm. given up given up or whatever it's like George Orwell wrote this book in 1948 which is why he called it 1984 did you know that oh no I did not <laughs> that's cute and he describes the way he describes the world there it's in London right the, where the most of the action occurs mm -hmm. and he describes basically wartime London where there were rationing and shortages and, and, and bombs kept falling and things like that so he kind of riffs on that Whereas something like Brave New World, it really describes kind of like a paradise in, in, mm -hmm. in a way, right? It's, why is it dystopia? You get whatever you want, you, whatever you do, you're happy with, right? Because mm -hmm. you were essentially bred to be happy in your position. You have fun, you can go play you know, three-dimensional tennis or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> whatever the sports he invented there. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I think from our point of view, the way we, the reason we think it's a dystopia is because it kind of, they try to suppress what we would consider these very human characteristics, like, you know, being creative, being uh, maybe sometimes miserable, maybe trying something different or, or not always be comfortable, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, both A Brave New World in 1984, I guess Brave New World probably more, and um, Handmaid's Tale as well. And to some degree, return from the stars. They all have a lot of sex in them, mm -hmm. right? So, Brave New World. It's all sex is just funsies, you know. Mm -hmm. And so that they they kind of strip all the emotional stuff from it. It's just like you know, uh, having ice cream or something. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, 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 mm -hmm. and 1984, it's the reverse. It's sex is just that to procreate. It's a job. Right. Right. And. Oh, that's interesting, and they're kind of on opposite ends of this. Of our right, but again, and, and the emotion is kind of removed from it. Like in you know, Winston, his his wife was you know left him because he failed on his job. Right. What, what did she say that they, we have to do our duty for the party? Right. 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 Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that's I mean, similar to Handmaid's Tale, right? That is very similar to Handmaid's Tale. So I'm wondering <laughs> if we should just go through the stories and put them on the scale, and see what we think. So if we got 1984 as our base right next in line would my my guess would be handmaid's tale Either right you're right because games. it's 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 but there's no sex in hunger games really well i mean we're not not by we don't have to do it by a sex scale but by a by a right. dystopia by scale dystopia between, scale you know, yeah i, I would say handmaid's tale is, is is in that corner right because mm -hmm. it's it's a very uncomfortable life it's there's a war going on that they're fighting baptists or something <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the same thing in, in 1984, right? There was a war that explained everything. You know, there are shortages. We can't produce stuff because we are, we've been at war with Oceania. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I think the difference why why I would say 1984 is closer to the 1984 end of the spectrum, besides that it is our marker for the end of the spectrum, <laughs> uh, is that um, the endings. Think about the way that the two stories end. You know, Winston Smith is killed at the end of 1984. Right. And well, um, he's not really. He's not so much killed as as, as his uh, soul it's is killed. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. Big Brother wins, right? <laughs> That's the Big idea. Brother wins. His, Winston's soul is basically dead. He gives up. So. Right. Um, and Handmaid's Tale, the ending, presumably, is that the Handmaid at least escapes the initial house she was in. Right. If not ultimately escaping. And, the, and the we disagree country. about whether she escaped or not. But. Right. Exactly. But she right. at least escapes the initial home of oppression, I suppose. Right. Right. Um, so that's why I put Hammond's Tale a little bit more, it's a ever so slightly more utopia right. than 1984. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little bit nicer, a, a little bit yeah. more hopeful ending, whereas the 1984 is just crushed. The hero mm-hmm. gets crushed and that's it. So then I think the next logical one would be Hunger Games. Okay, right. And that that's because it's still usually this very oppressive government, but... It's clear from the jump, you know, with Katniss that the people do a lot to get around it. You know, right. they go, she can go hunt and they can they can choose a lot of things in their lives. They can kind of choose where they're living. I mean, the things that are keeping them controlled, it's pretty much like poverty and right. like right. the police state, but it's not so intense as uh, right as the other ones. And so the game, say, games are kind of weird entertainment kind of mm-hmm. a thing. These all kind of have a similarity to in the the limiting of information and how information is disseminated or not disseminated right so that seems to be a, a theme throughout all the stories is how information is uh is tra- transferred or not transferred and then after that i'm not sure well i think return from the stars mm-hmm. is much closer to brave new world right so you have this mm-hmm. world that if you from that time everything is kind of nice and comfy you know, they have this device that you can't get hurt. You know, if you drive too fast and you crash into something, mm-hmm. it's just nothing happens. From the point, so the, in the story, the astronaut, Hal, Hal Bragg, who's the hero of the story, comes back from a trip in outer space, which is full of dangers and, and crazy adventures. And he comes back into, because of time dilation, 200 years into the future. And he discovers that, you know, the stuff that was most important to him, meaning space travel and, and exploration, Nobody cares. Mm-hmm. Like nobody cares because you know they can have you know, essentially like uh, holodeck experiences, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but safe. You know everybody's safe. Nothing bad happens. It's just mm-hmm. a little game, and everybody's kind of passive, and 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 he doesn't quite fit. Like you know you can't even hit people because they just you know they they killed all the sports that that involve fighting. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I think that would that would make sense next because it's sort of like it's, it's like he's he's John Savage, right? Exactly, it, but it's not we're not quite at Brave New World level, right? Um, with the, with the, and the, 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 the thing the about that utopia. book, the, the thing about mm-hmm. uh, Return from the Stars is that I read it several times, but I remembered the ending incorrectly. Oh, so interesting. I always thought that he decided in the end to go back. So he has a friend Olaf, right? Who Mm-hmm. Is in the same boat as him, and they just Olaf and a bunch of people decide that they can't stay here. They're going to go explore the cosmos some more, and mm-hmm. they invite him to go. And I thought that he went and he 
when I read reread it last time, he it seems to me that he didn't. Yeah, no, I don't think I don't think he does. That's interesting. You need to get one of those implants or whatever from from a truth of fact, <laughs> truth of feeling. Right. <laughs> Um, no, I think that makes sense for Return from the Stars. I'm kind of wondering, so I feel like 1984, Handmaid's Tale, and The Hunger Games are kind of on the you know more dystopic right. side of the spectrum. And then Return from the Stars is our first one that kind of steps into the utopic half of the spectrum. And I'm wondering why that is. And I, I mean, I think it's because the you know, society is so safe and everything, but it's not as... I guess part of the issue with utopia is that it begins to become forced at a certain point, and that's kind of where we're heading towards a brave new world, that it becomes a controlled happiness as opposed to return from the stars. Return from the stars sounds kind of like what might actually happen in history, where things just become safer and more fun and, you know, And nicer. It's, that's how it's been. It's becoming more safer and more fun than it used to be. Right. You know, we, we always talk about in the time of American Revolution, you're reading. You mm -hmm. could, you know, you could take your gun and and go into the wilderness and just come back three months later, and be fine. But you'd be completely free, not not encumbered by any uh, societal rules or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and it's probably harder, also maybe a bit more difficult to survive or something. But mm -hmm. it's a it's a challenge. So right, I, exactly. I I'm wondering somebody if somebody from two hundred years ago came to our time. You know, what would they think? So it'd be all kinds of amazing and confusing things. Mm -hmm. But then he would probably feel that, that, you know, we've become very soft, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure whatever, whatever like, jobs... Nobody can even ride the horse, you know. Right. <laughs> I'm sure whatever job someone had 200 years ago is probably now, like, an automated factory thing. Well, it depends you what you were doing. Someone... You know, if you were right. a writer, you were a writer, but... Um, yeah, definitely. So then, there's, so Return of the Stars, and then I guess the next one would be Truth of Fact, Truth of Feeling. Right, it's also a similar thing. But yeah, it's, where it's like, you know, the society is pretty realistic and everything, and then there's this technology. Then I would, then I would say Omalas, and then Brave New World. Right, Omalas almost stands, stands like a little bit to a side, because it's, 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 I don't know, it's, it's like a fable. Of it's like kind of like a, it's like a thought experiment. It's kind of like... I think Omalas is almost like a very, very, very watered-down version of Brave New World. It's like it kind of gets at the main gist of it, which mm. is the, the point, you know, when you talk about dystopias and utopias, is that one can't exist without the other. So there's you can't have something that's just a dystopia, and you can't have something that's just a utopia. And that's kind of what Omalas is in metaphor. I don't know. 1984 seems pretty dystopic to me. There is no, no, no utopia about it. Not that we know of, but we don't know anything about the inner party. You know, assumedly, and I think it's fair to assume in 1984, the government isn't run like that so that everyone can be miserable. Somebody's running it. And some, certainly yeah, someone's but I mean, Even somebody who's running it. could be miserable. But, uh, but certainly someone who's, whoever's running it is reaping some kind of benefit from it. Because they wouldn't, uh, I mean, a regular human wouldn't I guess. form a horrible government to also suffer in it. If they had all the power they would mm. do something to benefit themselves. It sounds like that's what the inner party does. Right. So, you know, I think it's really interesting because, you know, on this kind of scale, no matter where you go on this scale, there's the presence of both dystopic and utopic aspects, right? Right. So, yeah, I was, and, mm -hmm. I was starting to think about, you know, what the difference is between utopia and dystopia. 
and I guess, uh, you know, a utopia is when everything is kind of good, and but it's very constant. Nothing is really changing, and I think in mm -hmm. general, humans would not deal very well with that. When everything is just also peachy, you get bored, mm -hmm. right? So I was thinking, like Star Trek, is kind of a mm -hmm. utopia, right? Oh, definitely. Is the Earth of Earth of Star Trek's universe is very utopic, right? But this crew ship, this, the the crew of Starship Enterprise, has all kinds of crazy adventures because they're explorers. So some of the stuff they have to deal with is not utopian at all, right? Mm -hmm. So well, that's how they get away with it. They they you know Earth itself. Like if we were watching the the people in Star Trek just on Earth, it would be super boring. I mean, like they don't even get paid. They don't have money anymore on Earth. Well, who needs the money? Well, why are they doing all this hard <laughs> stuff for? There's no money. Like it's very hard to motivate people. I mean, it's certainly possible. Well, but, the, you know, it's kind of like they they do this backdrop of this kind of vague sort of utopia, specifically so that they can go explore other worlds and kind of be judgmental about it, mm -hmm. right? So, <laughs> so it's very easy to tell the audience, you know, racism is bad when the race you're talking about is a race where some of the people are literally painted half white and half black, and the other people are also painted half white and half black, but in the opposite pattern right and there's racism between them it's very easy to feed that to an audience and say look look this is stupid like obviously that's right. stupid racism is bad it's much harder to do that when you use actual races your audience is actually familiar with yeah so but star trek definitely definitely has a utopia backdrop right and you said something interesting oh you're talking about stasis yeah so i'm really interested in this i saw this in your notes stasis versus right change. so mm -hmm. basically uh, when things don't change that they become boring. People, people don't deal with with uh, stuff being very stasis, very the same. So like that was part of Brave New World, right? The people who, who were uncomfortable in that world were people who, kind of wanted to think and feel different things, not just the, be happy, happy, happy all the time, right? Mm -hmm. And I think there's a Chinese saying that, you you cannot uh, appreciate sweet until you taste taste bitter, mm -hmm. right? So yeah, it's the same kind yeah. of thing. Well, I think what's really interesting about this concept is, along with stasis and change, is like the the fact that human beings particularly seek out challenges to the point where we create challenges for ourselves. You know, we create games, you know, just to have like a, bunch, a set of rules and now play, and right. you know, feel feel accomplished when you win with the arbitrary rules you've created in the fake game you've created. You know, right. it's like very. I think that um, people need. Like you were saying, people need to feel challenged because they need to feel accomplishment. And well, it's, you know, it's, it's human nature. I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in the past, in, in Darwin's theory of evolution, he talks about struggle for existence, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, the whatever uh, organism survives is the one that somehow does something better or whatever. So, mm -hmm. and they have to, you know, humans can change their environment that they're living in, not just adapt to it by changing it. So I think, okay, then I think we're kind of, we're sort of hitting on two different things. So so when it comes to stasis and change, I have, I have a question for you, though. Mm -hmm. So we look at something like Brave New World, and I think we can pretty easily see that part of the part of the utopia is that, you know, everything is safe and fun and, and everyone's remember, healthy. Remember Mustafa, Mustafa Mann said stability, 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 right? That was right. The, that was the goal of the society. Right, so... And I think we as readers can read that and kind of be abhorred by it and say like, oh God, that, that seems so boring. That seems 
you know, awful in a lot of ways because of the, the fact that there, you know, there is no change and just stability is boring and doesn't, isn't challenging to us. On the opposite end of our spectrum in 1984, Winston doesn't like his stability, but certainly has it, right? Right, right. So I see what you're saying. So stability is part, well, I, I think uh, when I was thinking, now that we're talking about it, the extreme dystopia, extreme utopia are, are kind of the same, like the, the very static and the same, you know, this is really, really bad and that's, that's how it is and you can't change it. And mm -hmm. it's really, really good and that's how it is, deal with it, right? Mm -hmm. And the characters that you know, appear in these books, they want to do slightly different things, right? Mm -hmm. So Bernard was the one who just felt uneasy in that this kind of uh, society where you could, you know, sex was ice cream, he wanted to feel some emotion, he didn't want, he didn't want to have, you know, 50 girls, he wanted to have one, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I guess it kind of comes down to the, the two ends of the spectrum of the dystopias. I, I think that they, they are, I think at some point they roll over, but probably more of a circle than a... Well, I, I guess that that's something like Brave New World. Because, would... I mean, it has to do, it, it's not, it's, I think that there's, there's a similar element. It's not only like this, this stability or the staticness and the inability to change it, but also the, in, the intense um, government control and the fact that there's this... There's a, there's a reason you can't change it. Like, I imagine in Return to the Stars, if Hal really, really wanted to change something, he probably could, or at least he could make progress towards it or do, or do something Well, he like did. That. He ripped up the thing from his car so he could crash it. Right, exactly. You know, and he has, he has his friends could box. But, I mean, it was like mm -hmm. fighting against uh, a hurricane, you know. Mm -hmm. because but still having the ability to fight right so there's like very well it's, you know, it's like John John Savage who had the same kind of a thing where he he was basically men out of time mm -hmm. right and and once he left the reservation the things that he thought were valuable or, or you know things that he thought were admirable in, in his world were just silly in, in the other world mm -hmm. right so he mm -hmm. wanted to date Lenina and, and kind of keep on pedestal and have great love and stuff, you know, all the Shakespeare stuff. And, mm -hmm. and she thought that was silly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but she was attracted to him because he was different from her usual stuff. So she had a little bit of the boredom. Right, exactly. I wonder if it kind of also is part of like the concept that like humans always want what they can't have, right? The kind of that's reverse probably, psychology, yeah. you know, because that's the kind of thing you're hitting on here too, is that like, you know, like Bernard wanted... You know, he's surrounded by all this like wondrous freedom and safety, etc., and he could do all these things. But the one thing he wants to do is the one thing he's not supposed to want to do. And Winston Smith has a place to live and food and a job and like all these things that you know give him a lot of stability. But the, all the things he wants are none of those things. I, I wonder. I'm 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 just wondering if there's a connection between you know, wanting to accomplish things and wanting there to be change and a challenge and sort of this desire to, I guess, to, to earn something, and for lack of a better term, and like having a goal and achieving it. And then, you know, the, when, then when you're handed something, whether it be in a dystopic or utopic fashion, you know, the rejection of it, basically, because it's not something that you did anything that, that's probably to maintain. Part of it. So like the people have this creative impulse, right? We want to create things. 
mm-hmm. and even you know when you have a hobby and you and you make something or or, or paint or play music or whatever it's mm-hmm. it's always more fun when you do it on by yourself so there you know people with money can buy all the stuff that's probably made better than than would be otherwise or more professional or whatnot but still the mm-hmm. satisfaction of, of making something that was something that struck me actually in brave new world right there there, there are like two scenes where john savage he says the one only time he was happy while he was on reservation was somebody who was teaching him how to make pots from clay mm-hmm. and he basically mm-hmm. got lost in the in the making and uh, right. and the same thing happened to him when when he was in his exile, self-exile at the end, and he was making arrows so he could hunt. Mm-hmm. And he also fell into this, you know, kind of flow where he was creating the arrows. He just was living in the moment, essentially. And that's mm-hmm. why he decided, and he felt happy and he felt really guilty about it. That's why mm-hmm. he made the whip, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, and I guess maybe one of the things that's similar about dystopia and utopia is that they both prevent people that prevent the characters within their worlds from doing that and from from creating, really. But what did Winston want to create? He didn't want to create anything. He just wanted... He, he was having an affair with Julia and he was just happy just doing that. Well, he wasn't even particularly happy doing that but because he didn't really love Julia. I mean, he, he acknowledges that in the text. It, he, uh, he wanted to bring down Big Brother. He wanted to create a world without Big Brother. So he wanted to destroy the world of Big Brother and he well, basically wanted to rebel. He wanted um, to rebel and it was, yeah. but there was not, you know, what he was trying to rebel against was, was much, more, much too powerful for him to rebel against. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. No, it's definitely interesting to think about like what, you know, what, I, I guess a big part of it is control. And if you look at these stories that we kind of put in the middle of the spectrum, I think the difference between them as opposed to the ends of the spectrum is the amount of agency and control the characters have over their own lives. Well, the same, they, the same mm-hmm. in, in Return from the Stars, right? So Hal rebels. He first of all he kidnaps a girl, right? Just mm-hmm. because you know he could have asked her, and she probably would have said, "We'll go." But he, mm-hmm. he just he did his big man, you know, me Tarzan, you Jane kind of a thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he also rebelled in a sense that you know he ripped out the safety device out of his car. He got his friend to come down and and. Do he wanted to box, mm-hmm. right? So I mean, maybe one of the things that dystopia and utopia both do also is sort of uh, it seems it's it sounds like they they prevent humans from fulfilling their nature, both in terms of like creating, but also so in terms of creating, in terms of robbing people of, of autonomy and choice. Right. You could and, say you you can mm-hmm. dystopias take people's freedom right and but so but so does utopia <laughs> right you know they both do right and which is i guess really this point like brave new world is tries to make that point and so does return from the stars almost well, not so do. much the, the oldest so like i was just thinking you mentioned rebellion so in mm-hmm. hunger games the rebellion is at the very end of the story where katniss decides not you know she's not going to kill peter mm-hmm. no matter what the rules are right mm-hmm yeah, I mean that's a direct example of. I mean, she's also rebelling throughout the story because she's, when you know, when she's back living in District Twelve, she's rebelling by going hunting illegally. She's yeah. mentally rebelling a lot. There's like a lot of active thinking mm-hmm. about rebelling. 
which is really interesting. I think a lot of these stories, actually, the one thing they have in common is that the characters, save for Omalas, which we don't have a first-person point of view in, or, or a close third person, the characters all think so much. They have so many thoughts. And they think about their circumstances a lot, which I think a lot of fiction doesn't always go into. You know, like they, like, you know, they think about, you know, Winston thinks about Big Brother and the, the structure of society and stuff like that. And, you know, Katniss is constantly thinking about Pan Am and the, her feelings about it and things like that. Um, Wait, the Handmaid, so what is the rebellion there? So hers is all like micro rebellion stuff, right? You know, she well, discovering... she participates with the with the uh, what's his name, the captain. general, the general or captain? I forget. Captain? Was it captain? I forget. Yeah, the guy, the man of the house. I forget. I don't remember his hand. I don't remember his name. Yeah, I mean, she participates in some rebellion. I think most of what she does is this sort of the sort of passive mental rebellion that most, the vast majority of people in those right. kind of situations right. need to participate in. You know, most of the time, if you're in an oppressive government, you can't, you as an individual can't really do anything, but being aware of the fact that that's what's going on and like retaining a sense of, of reality is part of rebellion. Right, don't, don't let the mm -hmm. bastards grind you down. Mm -hmm. Don't exactly. let the bastards grind you down, right. And that's why 1984's Thought Police is so, Frightening and right. so important because right. that that's the exact kind of rebellion that thought police are trying to curb. And they eventually get to Winston, so he gives mm -hmm. up even there, right? This actually relates sort of, so we talked about stasis and changes, relates pretty well to the idea of the individual versus the collective in terms of dystopia and utopia. And I think that, again, looking at our scale, when you look at the two ends of the spectrum for dystopia and utopia, the, overar the, o the overwhelming feeling is that the collective is what matters, not the individual. Right. And then when you kind of look at our middler stories, there's more individuality allowed to those characters by their circumstances. Which ones? Oh, you mean, so, well, I guess in, in Hunger Games, there's more of individual kind of a thing. Right, so like in 1984, for example, the government's so down everyone's throats that nobody has their own opinions about stuff, right? It's right. like they're so controlled, they can't everything. Whereas, you know, your next step up in Handmaid's Tale, the handmaid, at least internally, has her own memories and her own opinions about things. and Right, you know, and there, there's the, the Handmaid Network where they mm -hmm. kind of pass rumors around, so you kind of sort of know what, what goes on amongst the handmaids. Right? Mm-hmm. And then sort of as you get to the other end of it, when you look at like Brave New World, you know, does Lenina really have her own individuality or is she basically programmed to be how she is? I mean, she's genetically programmed to be as she is. Well, she, she's a beta, you know, what did you expect? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And she, and she, uh, you know, and that is not for her benefit, it's for so society's that's benefit. That's an interesting question you know, of destiny versus, uh, again, individual agency, individual freedom, right? Mm -hmm. And then I think what's interesting is, this is where the, the short story, um, Truth of Fact, Truth of Feeling, I think kind of is an interesting juggernaut in this, mm -hmm. not juggernaut, I don't know, it's, a, it's an interesting pivot kind of in this scale for uh, in this topic, because I think, so that the 
main character in that story. Well, there's two main characters, two but main the, characters, the modern right. the modern day main character, the father, is struggling with this new device that lets you record your entire life and then um, easily search right. all of your recorded memories. Right. right. And I think the reason one of the reasons he's struggling with it is that it favors the collective memory of an event, which is whatever the real memory is of it, right? Versus the whatever individual's real memory. Means. Yeah. <laughs> Versus the individual's memory right. of it. Right. And I think that that's an example of a technology that is maybe one of the reasons we would consider that story a dystopia or a utopia is because of the fact that that technology minimizes your feelings about a memory and basically makes your feelings about a memory totally useless. Right, right. irrelevant. The, the right. Way, right. Yeah, it's, it doesn't matter what you think happened because we have the actual record of what actually happened and that's what controls ultimately. So it's like very much putting down the individual and bolstering the right. collective in that way. Well, in Brave New World, it is stability versus uh, the couple of individuals. So as Bernard, who was the guy who wanted to be a writer who didn't want to write silly ads? Oh, I don't remember their I names forget anymore. His name, but, <laughs> but, I should uh, have gone back and listened to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Again, there's people who want to express the individual, individuality, right? They want to, the guy doesn't want to write ads. He wants to write plays like Shakespeare. Uh, Bernard mm -hmm. wants to have, you know, be in love with one girl and mm -hmm. exclusively. And John Savage, you know, has his own sh savage ways, right? Yes. But, uh, <laughs> They have to and be su suppressed because they, mm -hmm. the collective is more important in the story. This, you know, stability, stability, stability. Mm -hmm. And the collective is more powerful. I think that's. that's well, kind I mean, of even the... Mustafa Mann said you know, he was interested in physics. You know, he was the world controller, and mm -hmm. he gave all that up because he wanted to have stability. Right. 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 And I think one of the things we can pull out from these dystopias and utopias is that. The, collect, the collective will overpower the individual. Maybe that's what makes it a dystopia. That the indi like individuality... Right, you the know, mob comes after you. Yeah. Particularly in the West and like in, in the United States and America, you know, the, you know, we value individuality so, so much. And right. so these stories about the individual being not only struggling against the collective, but like ultimately losing to the collective right. are viscerally very difficult. I think for for Western readers, are these all stories? Well, so Western? Huxley was English, Orwell was English, mm -hmm. Lem was Polish, Collins is and and Atwood are both American, or Atwood is Canadian but North American, mm -hmm. right? And Le Guin is, and Chang are both Americans. So. Yeah, so it's like pretty, pretty Western. So I wonder if maybe that's kind of because you know we have these stories that are. You know, ones that are clearly dystopia, ones that are kind of more utop on the utopia mm -hmm. side, whatever. But they all kind of have these things, you know, I don't think we would really want to live in the Brave New World Society. I don't think I would want to live in the Brave New World Society. There's a lot of things I like about it. Well, not um, be being what you are, right? But I mean, that's the whole thing. It's uh... Right. You know, if I had some kind of way to choose, you know, I I wouldn't want to be programmed to have a particular destiny. I mean, this is kind of interesting. It kind of gets back to... Our discussion back when we read um, the story of your life, also by Ted mm -hmm. Chang, the, about you know autonomy and and destiny fate. essentially just destiny, knowing. yeah, right, exactly. And it's like I, it's not fun to know how everything's going to play out. You know, you kind of want to 
you kind of want it to surprise you. Surprised you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- this wanna? goes back to my theory of art. Remember, where mm-hmm. art has come, you know, it's it's a you have to have a right balance between what's expected or what's unexpected. Mm-hmm. I, that's funny. This maps very much into this idea of stasis and change, right? If it's if it's everything's really expected, it's really boring. It's because mm-hmm. you know, so it doesn't make interesting art. If it's unexpected, it's also boring because you have no idea what how to interpret it, and you have to kind of balance it in between the two, right? Mm-hmm. So every, you know, if you have a like a let's say a story or a book where the words don't even make sentences, they're just kind of randomly thrown words. Nobody's mm-hmm. gonna read it. There's nothing. If so it's like one, like like the Ulysses or something like that. Right. Well, Ulysses <laughs> is a little bit not quite there, but. Ulysses actually is meant to be read out loud because it's the Irish accent that that, mm-hmm. that gets you. What is what I hear? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think that that's that's very true, and I think a lot of these kind of scales and this verse that that kind of stuff that we're coming up with all kind of relate to each other in that way. So there is one more bit here and then I want to get to our final question so mm-hmm. you you put in the note scapegoat versus martyr and then I thought about it and I thought I had figured it out but I'm not 100% sure I have so what do you what do you mean by scapegoat right, so this versus is, martyr we, we talked when well, we talked about Omalas right so mm-hmm. uh, part of the story of Omalas that is this one child that suffers terribly in order so that the rest of society can be utopian right mm-hmm. and uh, we were saying you said well that's a scapegoat right so there's a person who suffers essentially for sins of others uh, or to make others' lives better or something. And mm-hmm. we try to decide which one is, uh, what's the difference between that and a martyr. And I think you came up with the, the observation that a martyr has a choice. So you, a martyr will choose to mm-hmm. jump into the fire or jump on the grenade or, or whatever, do something, mm-hmm. be himself like crucified, let's say. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, knowing that this will save people and help people, right? So mm-hmm. um, that's a very smart observation. Definitely sounds like something I said. <laughs> <laughs> I just listened to how smart I was in the past. Because mm. <laughs> I don't I don't remember that. <laughs> but I mean I think I do think that's true. Yeah. So I guess if you're So like if you mm-hmm. look at our main characters throughout these books. So Wilson wasn't neither, right? I wouldn't call him a martyr or or a scapegoat. I was thinking in 1984 that the other countries were scapegoats because of the way they did their propaganda. So I was thinking it more in terms of how it functioned in the story, right. not as in the individuals. So I don't know that, yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't know that 1984 has right. a... Right, so yeah, you can think, who, who do you blame for the current situation, right? Right. So yeah, what about so Katniss? Katniss volunteers, right? A volunteer right. tribute. So she would fall... I think more into the martyr category, and um, if you read the second and third book, which I do not suggest because they're not good, but if you do that, um, or if you go watch the movies, uh, she becomes she definitely becomes a martyr because she becomes like a symbol of the revolution. Right. And I do think part an aspect of martyrdom would be how you're ultimately viewed, because obviously a martyr is viewed well and a scapegoat is viewed not well. Right. But in, in con- the context of just the first book, she, if she would have to be a martyr, I think she'd be a martyr. And Handmaid's um, Tale, I think she, she's neither, she kind of sort of escapes it anyway, so. I think she might become, I mean, I think that 
the difficulty with both scapegoat and martyr is they kind of imply that the person dies, um, and like Katniss doesn't die, right? Um, though she does almost die uh, a lot. Um, Handmaid's <laughs> Tale, we we don't know if she dies or not. I mean, I could see the handmaid becoming. But she wasn't doing it for any to any greater purpose, right? So she was just yeah, she, was she just, just stuck to in, that situation. in that situation. Yeah. So Omalas would be a scapegoat. Right. Right, that, that shall be a scapegoat. What other stories do we have here? Let's see. What's the other ones that I don't think applies, like uh, Return from the Stars? What about Brave New World, about John Savage dies? Yeah, he's he... kind of a martyr figure, right? Because mm-hmm. he's, he's one of those uh, people who's out of place, and mm-hmm. in the place where he, li- where, he, where he was born, where he lived on the reservation, and then when he left there, it was other places as well. So he was like, in between the worlds somehow. Right. Yeah, I can see him on kind of the martyr scale. I don't know that it really applies to Return from the Stars. Right. But that's interesting to think about the way that that plays in with these dystopias and utopias. And how, how common that is, actually, if you're looking at them. How right. often that archetype kind of comes up. Do we talk about technological dystopias? We started with that, like the political and the technological. But so, I just, I don't know if I said it before, but the interesting thing about the technology part is that the effect of technologies can be ambiguous, right? So, like in terms mm-hmm. of the stars, the technologies that he describes are kind of cool. You know, self-driving mm-hmm. cars, you know, Amazon store with Kindle. <laughs> uh, robots everywhere, right? Doing mm-hmm. stuff for you so you don't have to do any hard work. Uh, everything is safe, so you don't have to worry about, you know, crashing your car. But then there's this, remember the scene in Superintendent from the Stars in the recycling factory of robots? Oh my God, it was so creepy. Uh, yeah. Ugh. So the technology, you know, on from one hand can be pretty amazing, but on the other mm-hmm. hand, it's like it takes away from your ability, I guess, you know, from the, from the humanity of the characters, right? So the characters who lived in that mm-hmm. future had adapted and they're fine with it. They, they moved on kind of beyond that. Mm-hmm. But uh, Hal, being the guy from, from the past, has issues with it. Mm-hmm. It's like, I, I keep trying to imagine what, what would happen to somebody from 200 years ago, like if Hamilton was alive today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> what, what would he think? You know? He would just write a lot, but he'd be typing instead of writing. He would put, he'd be posting like a lot on Facebook. That's what he would do. I don't know. No, I mean, uh, I'm sure there's stuff like that that would be like, I mean, I mean, imagine 200 years from now what kind of weird stuff they're going to have if you were popped into that right. world. Like, but like, you know, to heat your house, you had to like chop wood and stuff. And nowadays mm-hmm. you don't do that. So it's like, what if you enjoy chopping wood? There's a really, there's a, I'm going to quote, I'm going to make, I'm going to quote you some Frozen 2. There's uh-huh. a really good quote from Frozen 2 where Olaf, the talking snowman, Mm-hmm. The another character asks him like, "Oh, what's that thing you always say?" And he gets it wrong a couple of times. But the first thing he says is, um, "Oh, how technology, how advancing technology is going to be both our savior and our destruction." <laughs> 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 and I think like, yeah, that's kind of maybe that's also one of the things dystopias and utopias are trying to explore. Right. Because these stories are so different, right? They all fall into this category. They're not only are they all science fiction. Mm-hmm. But they're all dystopias, and they're all so different. So it's like, what, 
you know, trying to define like what is a dystopia is very difficult because it's a relatively broad category. And, you know, I think that it's part of it being um, the individual versus the collective, part of it being the expressing the fears of advancing technology and so, change. Right. So well, one thing I thought, and this kind of appears in, in a couple of these, so like when I talk, we talked about John Savage being happy when he was making stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a similar scene in uh, Return from the Stars, I think. But th there, there is this, uh, in Zen, there is this idea of, of kind of living in the moment. Right, mm -hmm. just just kind of being totally present now and not kind of putting everything else out of your mind, and that's that's the kind of you know what I called it flow state before. So people really enjoy that. That's that's a state to be. People like to be in. So people who do meditation kind of get there, but mm -hmm. it it occurs in many different places in literature, and like one one other place where I remember it from is actually from War and Peace, which I'm mm -hmm. reading it now. But uh, not not yet. I'm reading that uh, revolutionary book first, and then yeah, because well, I, I can't stop watching Hamilton, so I keep reading things about the Revolutionary War. <laughs> uh, War and Peace is one, but there's also seen Anna Karenina, so it's another Tolstoy book, where mm -hmm. he one of the characters goes out uh, to work with uh, the peasants, just cutting hair, hair, hay, with uh, a scythe, a scythe, right, mm -hmm. and he describes the basically just him working just walking down the, the, the field and cutting the, the hay and it's like he gets into this flow state it's just you just live in the now it, the work that that's in front of you is just kind of the thing and and you know sort of you feel very human and i think technology sometimes takes that away right mm -hmm. so because it's not particularly efficient to go and, and if you have a big field of hay it's easy to have a, get a machine and stuff but you know working with your hands and, and just getting into that state as, as something that, that people probably crave. It's like you know, when, you, when you get into some creative kind of endeavor with your writing or something, sometimes you get lost in the process. Mm -hmm. And often the technology that, that we create uh, takes it away, right? Because we're trying to be you know, more efficient or whatever. Mm -hmm. So like chopping wood, you know, to heat up your house, it could have been one of those tasks where you enjoy the physical process of mm -hmm. chopping wood and just being there and doing it and then you wind up with something useful yeah i mean i completely agree i mean i think that um i think people really enjoy that kind of thing i know for myself i i love driving i love because uh, i get to listen to music and i get i have i can think very well when i'm driving into right. particularly thinking about creative things and the concept to me that probably by the end of my life will be up to self-driving automated cars is kind right. of annoying because i like driving <laughs> And well, like, it's just like horses, right? Riding horses. So at one time, horsemanship was very important. I recently read biography of Ulysses S. Grant, and mm -hmm. one of the interesting things about him was he was an incredible horseman. Mm -hmm. So, like when he was at, uh, he went to West Point, and he was known for doing horse riding, riding tricks. You know, he was, <laughs> I mean, and throughout his life, he he actually got injured a few times when he fell off a horse, but he always mm -hmm. rode horses and always was excellent at it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and you know, you've done a little bit of horseback riding, so you know what it's like, you know. It's terrifying. I don't know who would ever get relaxed and <laughs> get into a kind of... I, I'm, every time I'm on a horse, I'm panicking. I'm doing it, but I'm panicking. Well, you don't, you're not doing it enough, but... <laughs> but, I mean, I think one of the things about technology is, like, yes, it does 
it can definitely interrupt those kind of activities. It can also create those kind of activities. So I think the number one way I know I get to relax is by playing mm-hmm. video games. Right. And that's exactly what video games do. They narrow your world to, you know, you, but that's are, why you, people are, use... blood elf, you are a blood elf fire mage here in, um, gosh, I forget the name of the one place I used to love uh, in World of Warcraft. But, you're, you're, you know, you're here. Here's right. a set of quests. This is your point A, your point B, your point C. You do these things, you accomplish these tasks, and you your brain gives you the good chemical to make you feel happy because you've done it. And what? for that time, you're not worried about the past or the future or the existential crisis or the meaning of life or any of that kind of stuff. I think reading does the same thing. Right, and telling stories does the same thing, right? So mm-hmm. I, I've read this book, which I think was a high school book, about uh, a kid, a white kid who got kidnapped by Indians as, as a baby. Mm-hmm. And he grew up among the Indians in uh, New Jersey. So it was mm-hmm. like, and he talks about like in the middle of the winter where everything was just covered with snow and all they could do is pretty much sit inside the little hut. Mm-hmm. There was a guy who was old guy who had to be carried around because he couldn't walk, but they would bring him to like a place and, and he would tell stories and mm-hmm. he could, you know, like tell stories and stories and stories. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that's, I guess, I guess the sort of getting to stability and change too is like not like stability is no fun, but also change that is too rapid is also no fun. Right. People don't like when, you know, they, they get used to something like they get used to something like, you know, hearing a story orally, like we had in, mm-hmm. in, um, in Ted Chang's short story here. And then the change to writing and, and reading it not being the same. Right. And, you know, you could enjoy it in the one version, but not in another version. And uh, certainly that disrupting. Right. So it's like, you know, you uh, people as they live their lives want to have some excitement, but some predictability as well. And it's just the balance mm-hmm. between the two. And these right. stories kind of push it in one way or another. Like mm-hmm. with Winston in, in 1984, he could have, he didn't know what was going to happen because he could have arrested any moment because somebody told him that, you know, ratted on him and something, and he he he'd go to a ministry of love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I guess so. The final question we kind of have here is, why do we like dystopian stories, or do we? And why why do people keep writing dystopian stories? Because they're scary a lot of times. Um, so well, do you do you like dystopias? I like technological dystopias. I always like to think about. Uh, what technology would would what effect technology would have on things? So mm-hmm. something like Return from the Stars was interesting. Brave New World was interesting. Something like Handmaid's Tale, eh? It was not. A, it was totally societal kind of a thing. It mm-hmm. was very well written and kind of very, you know, just from this one point of view, where you kind of had to puzzle out what what's going on. Just kind of interesting, but it's not my favorite. Mm-hmm. I like Hunger Games because it's like a cheap story where the hero wins in the end. So, <laughs> so I mean, do you, so you like dystopias that have a more a more optimistic kind of feel? I like I, I prefer things that are somewhat ambiguous. Like you know, like I like the Ted Chang story because it's fun to think about what it means when writing is introduced, right? So it's it's actually very disruptive technology, mm-hmm. and and Return from the Stars is the same thing. You kind of get dropped into a world with all this technology as as a person of today, kind of. What what would you think? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if I was hell, I would not be kidnapping girls, but... <laughs> <laughs> because that felt wrong, but... Uh, 
some of the other stuff he was doing. Yeah. I mean, so I think for me, I like, um, I like dystopias a lot. I always have. I think I tend to like more the social dystopias, like Handmaid's Tale, mm -hmm. 1984. I don't really, I'm not a big fan of utopias or things that border on utopia. Like, I, like, I mean, I like Brave New World in that, like, it's an interesting concept, but it's not, like, one of my favorite books or anything. 1984 is one of my favorite books. And I like, I don't know, I guess I just, I like stories that have... Terrible endings? That are darker. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like, you know, I love fantasy and I love, like, the Song of Ice and Fire series, right? And... That's a pretty dark series. Like, it particularly gets at books four and five in that series, and it's like bad things happen a lot. And but it's not it's not like bad just for the sake of it to be bad or for it to be shocking. It's mm -hmm. like there's a purpose to it. You know, nineteen eighty four is very dark for a purpose. It's telling. Right. It's making a point. It has a point right. to make to you. Besides just the part in the middle where Winston sits down and reads the book and tells you <laughs> uh, his feelings. <laughs> When the author is like, let me explain my philosophy that besides <laughs> that, the, the book itself, the, the sadness and the darkness is, is to a point. And so I, I do like stuff like that. And I think that one of the reasons I like dystopias is that a lot of science fiction that is like social experiment type science mm -hmm. fiction are dystopias. Right. You know? Do we know when the utopias and those long lines? Like something, was well, Star Trek other than Star Trek? Right, and the only interesting thing about Star Trek is that they go elsewhere, right? They right. don't hang out in their utopia. <laughs> they leave. Actually, I was places. thinking with Star Trek, like Deep Space Nine, they don't leave. They stay in one spot. Yeah, but none of the none of the issues are caused by Earth, right? So right, none of the right. issues are caused by Starfleet. The issues are caused by the Bajorans, the Cardassians, the 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 fact that the Bajorans want to join the nice utopian Starfleet, right, right. and they're like trying the whole time to join. You know, that's the, it's like their struggle to get to the utopia. Right, you have you have to struggle, otherwise it's boring. I don't want to read about like how lovely Harry Kim's life was before he went on Voyager. You know, like okay, it was lovely, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the attraction of these books. You know, we want our lives to be nice and boring and pleasant, mm -hmm. but we want to imagine what what you know what would I do if I was Katniss? Oh yeah, I think that's that one of the things about science fiction generally. That's that's. So interesting is like you know by by virtue of reading a story about characters you think to yourself well what would I do, right. you know you think about I think Omalas is actually probably the best example because Omalas specifically puts to the reader you know people that live here have to make a choice to right. stay and and know this or to leave right. and so it kind of automatically gives you the choice and it's like upsetting how many of us would stay because a lot of us would would you stay or would you leave people. I don't know I would have left my fit. If my family was there, I probably would have stayed. Mm. If I can get my whole family to go, I would go. But yeah, it's it. so it's. I think it's really interesting. So, I guess people keep writing them because they sell very well. So, <laughs> the reason. Okay, so I think we've hit them on pretty much everything with the dystopias that we've read. Well, so what's um, next? What are we going to do next? What's our project? So, net our next set of of readings is going to be long books. Uh. <laughs> I was saying the theme would be, you know, classics or something. Right, and so the next one's going to be Dune, right? Right. So I've read Dune before, but I read it back, oh my gosh, I was like 13 when I read Dune. Yeah, I've read and Dune I... before as well. And there's going to be a new movie, right? There's like a new Dune movie that's in production. It's supposed to be out in December, so 
hopefully okay. we can have the podcast out before that. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So we're gonna do. So we're gonna do classics. So we'll do Dune. Have we picked any other ones? No. I think we were talking about Foundation, but I don't know if we actually want to reread Foundation. No, I don't want to read Foundation. Yeah. I don't, um, I don't like Foundation. No, maybe. Oh, some. we could do. We could do I Robot. Those just yeah. Classic. Those are pretty good stories. Um, maybe we should do some Highline. Um, mm-hmm. He's got a couple of short books that are kind of political. To kind of, like Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Mm, um, yeah. Or Strange in a Strange Land is not the classic. Ooh, yes. Have you read that? Some of those. No, I haven't read either of them, but I know them. Okay. I know of them. So, yeah, so our next one will be Dune. Um, Dune's a long book, so I don't know if you and I kind of talked about maybe doing two podcasts for it or we weren't sure. Let's see how it goes, yeah. Yeah, um, so we'll figure it out. But, um, but that's it for Dystopias. So uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next time. I just have some comment for the for the outtake maybe okay you want to record the outtake on purpose go for it yeah so remember we uh one of the interesting points in the uh, truth of factor of feeling was uh about words when and uh, uh, gingy was right learning to write he wrote everything just squished together mm-hmm. and and then they the missionary Missionary, yeah. Missionary told them you have to space the words out because, and he didn't understand what words were, right? So I was listening to, listening to another podcast and they were talking to the author of a book called The Shallows, which is a book about internet influence on a culture. So mm-hmm. I, I have to read it. But one of the things he talked about, a little bit about, you know, compared introduction of internet to introduction of writing. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, Initially, people, when they wrote, they wrote it to be read out loud. Mm-hmm. So all the symbols were just strung together without any spaces. Mm-hmm. It's only when people started to read silently to themselves, that's when they started adding the spaces, according to him. Oh. And he actually quotes, had a quote from St. Augustine, who makes some comments about some bishop who said he reads so well because he would read to himself <laughs> quietly. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and he makes the same point, you know, the guy was saying, you know, when you speak, we don't do any, you can't tell where the words start or end. It's kind of mm-hmm. slightly arbitrary. So I actually went on the internet and looked at some photos of old, old books like Greek and, and uh, Sumerian and stuff. And he was right, there is no spaces. And yeah. you, to, you told me in Japanese there is no spaces between words either. Yeah, normally in Japanese there isn't. Um, there can, it's actually interesting because there can be, and I, and I think... I think that's a Western influence thing, uh, because you don't have to write Japanese with any spaces. Right. So, like, if you look at like, if you were in Japan and you look at like signs for stuff, for example, a lot of times there are just no spaces. Um, whereas, if you look in like, you know, the the Japanese books that we learned from when I was in college, the sentences would have spaces uh, in within the book, like within the the textbook, but then when we did like tests and things like that, our teacher, like she always wrote on the board, just no spaces and we could write with no spaces and that's really how it was supposed to be. Interesting. So, yeah. So yeah, so words are not that obvious. No, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, how are we supposed to tell when someone's just talking to you where a word begins and ends? It's, 
just sound. Right.